Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us uh, for this presentation. Uh, for those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, a doctoral program, and two new online master of arts programs. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. And to support the work of IWP, please visit iwp.edu slash donate. This morning, we'll be hearing from David Satter. David Satter is a former Russia scholar, Moscow correspondent, and author of five books on Russia and the Soviet Union. Mr. Satter, welcome, and thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. And uh, this is not the first time that I've spoken at IWP, and uh, I, uh, I value the opportunity to kind of share some thoughts with you about the present tragic situation uh, involving Ukraine and, and Russia as well, because it's uh, equally tragic for Russia and is likely to have very serious long-range consequences. I think I'll begin with uh, the origins of this conflict. Uh, basically, what is happening now was, in a sense, uh, foretold by critical decisions that were made many years ago when the Soviet Union fell, and a new supposedly democratic Russia emerged from the wreckage of what had been a, uh, a conglomeration of 15 republics. At that time, uh, decisions were made that had fatal consequences for Russia, including the, the notion that it would be possible to transform the formerly socialist economy into a free market uh, economy without the benefit of the rule of law. In those days, uh, what mattered was uh, speed and uh, decisiveness. Those people who were called the young reformers were determined, first of all, to make sure that there would be no communist revenge, that regardless of the will of the people, communists and people who, who identified with the communists would have no opportunity to retake power. Accordingly, they acted with haste to take property out of the hands of the state and put it in the hands of private individuals. This in and of itself was not necessarily a bad thing, although acting in haste is always a mistake uh, in such situations. But the problem was that it, the, the transfer of property, which was the largest transfer of property uh, under peaceful circumstances, arguably in world history, was carried out without the benefit of the rule of law. And under those circumstances, with assets worth billions of dollars at stake and no legal restraint, uh, those who triumphed were uh, inevitably the most capable predators. And what was created in Russia was not a law-based democracy, but on the contrary, a criminal oligarchy, which ruled in its own interests and used democracy not as a, a, a valid a form of government appropriate to a new era, but rather as kind of a masquerade for their own a seizure of wealth. This process went on uh, for the entire decade of the 1990s after the Soviet Union fell, and it led to the impoverishment of the country. And similarly, a catastrophic social situation in which millions of people suffered premature death. Uh, the causes were various. Uh, they were suicide, accidents, illness, 
the rate of cardiovascular disease spiraled. Western demographers looking at the figures could not believe that the death rate had reached the level of, of an African country engaged in a civil war. Uh, and so there was massive discontent. And it was that situation that led uh, to the rise of Vladimir Putin. In 1999, uh, Russia was really in crisis. Uh, the approval rating for Yeltsin was 2%. Uh, Yeltsin's family was deeply enmeshed in corruption. In fact, they were the epicenter of the corruption. Many of the biggest fortunes in Russia were created because of friendship with uh, the members of Yeltsin's family, in particular, his daughter, Tatyana Tiachenko. Uh, Yeltsin and his entourage were fearful that if there was a new government elected or a new president elected in 2000, and according to the constitution after two terms, Yeltsin had to surrender power, that uh, his, the, the first result would be the criminal prosecution of, of leading members of the, of, of the then current government. So uh, rumors, of course, spread in Moscow that something was likely to happen. Some people said that there would be a, uh, a terrorist attack against government buildings. Others predicted there would be a criminal war on the streets of Moscow, anything that would allow Yeltsin uh, to declare martial law and cancel the elections. Uh, what happened, of course, was that four apartment buildings were blown up. Those, build those explosions were blamed on Chechens. A new war was launched against the Chechen Republic, which as a result of a previous war had achieved nominal independence. And Vladimir Putin, the former head of the FSB, which is the successor organization to the KGB, was made prime minister and he was put in charge of that war. And as a result of initial successes, he achieved popularity in Russia, specifically because he posed as the defender of the Russian people who had been the victims of a terrorist act. And under those circumstances, many people were willing to close their eyes to the corruption of the Yeltsin hero, close their eyes to the fact that Putin was Yeltsin's handpicked successor and vote for him for president. Of course, he also benefited from a very clever public relations campaign, which oddly enough contrasted his relative youth and vigor with uh, the debilitated state of Yeltsin, who by that time in 2000 was literally, uh, in the words of, of, of some people, a living corpse. Under these circumstances, uh, eight years after the fall of the Soviet Union, and despite the widespread discrediting of the KGB during the years of perestroika and glasnost, Russia was once again headed by someone from the intelligence services. And there were early signs that that person uh, was uh, fully, fully, fully shared, that that person fully shared the mentality of the KGB. Early on, he dedicated a plaque to Yuri Andropov on the KGB building. He made uh, uh, statements praising Stalin and Stalin's wartime le uh, leadership. He was a little bit circumspect at first because he understood the consequences of, of being identified with the old KGB and also with Andropov and Stalin, but nonetheless, those were early signs of the direction in which he would be moving. Well, subsequently, of course, information came, uh, came known that made it perfectly clear to anyone with the eyes to see that those bombings, which were used 
to justify the Second Chechen War, which in turn made Putin president, that they were carried out by the FSB itself. I mean, the most important evidence was, of course, the planting of, the, of a fifth bomb, which didn't go off, in the basement of a building in Ryazan, a city southeast of Moscow. Uh, the people who planted the bomb were discovered. They turned out to be not Chechen terrorists, but FSB agents. Well, that should have been enough evidence for anyone, because the bombs were exactly the, the bomb that was put in the building in Ryazan was exactly the same as the bombs that were uh, used to blow up uh, the four previous buildings. But by that time, neither the Russians nor the West were interested in, in, in determining the true nature of what had happened. Uh, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright uh, was uh, asked about the bombings uh, in February at a hearing before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and she uh, gave it evasive answers to a question about who was responsible. She said that the U.S. opposes terrorism in all its forms. It was basically a non-answer. But yet the U.S. had information uh, about the bombings. Uh, I, I submitted a Freedom of Information Act request uh, uh, for documents from the State Department, the CIA, and other government agencies that got very little. But I did get a few documents from the State Department indicated that their most trusted informants were telling them that the, the bombings were extremely suspicious and that the truth about the bombings would tear apart the whole country. Maybe it was as a result of those warnings that a decision was made not to tell the truth about what had happened and therefore prevent a terrorist from taking power in Russia but rather to cover it up and hope for the best. I have a feeling that that's what happened. But there was another element in the whole thing, which was that the people who made that decision had behind them, you know, for the most part, eight years of false uh, analysis of the situation in Russia, eight years of, of arguing that Yeltsin, who would have had to have approved those bombings, uh, was the embodiment of democracy and that all the United States had to do was simple-mindedly uh, back Yeltsin and it would automatically be advancing democracy. I mean, this kind of cliched thinking, of course, uh, led uh, Westerners and Americans in particular to overlook the criminalization of Russia and to overlook the fact that we now had a regime in Russia that was going to be very dangerous to its own people, and it was going to be dangerous to the whole world. It's going to be dangerous to us ultimately. It was, this is what we found. Now, during his reign, during his period in power, uh, Yeltsin uh, employed tactics which have since been amplified and adopted by Putin. The first Chechen war, which began in December 1994, was launched, according to Oleg Lobov, who was Yeltsin's security advisor, uh, because we need, because in his words, this is what he said, he said, we need a short, victorious war in order to, to raise the rating of the president. Well, the war, first of all, it didn't occur to anyone that that's not a good reason to start a war. But beyond that, and the war, of course, was neither short nor, victor nor victorious, but it indicated a certain type of thinking, the idea that lives can be wasted, that uh, tragedy uh, can be unleashed uh, simply for the selfish political motives of a handful of morally obtuse people at the pinnacle of power. And that pattern was repeated uh, in the case, obviously, of the apartment bombings, uh, which led to the Second Chechen War. Now, in the Second Chechen War, uh, which was launched despite the fact that there was a peace treaty uh, between uh, Russia and Chechnya, which pledged the two countries to resolve all disputes peacefully, which 
case of Russia was simply ignored or, or ignored on the basis of a supposed uh, terrorist attack, which seemed to have ties to Chechnya. Uh, that war uh, led, led by, by, by various accounts to tens of thousands of civilian dead. We don't know the exact figures. And of course, uh, many thousands of Russian soldiers were killed. Unfortunately, though, the casualty estimates uh, by the various sides tend to be uh, tend to be unreliable. I mean, what I what some people have suggested as a reliable figure is five thousand Russian soldiers killed and a hundred thousand civilians uh, in the Second War. But uh, you know, I I should point out that those figures are disputed, and it's not an easy way to determine what the real casualty figure was, but we do know that Grozny was, was the capital of Chechnya was practically leveled. And the United Nations said it was the most bombed city in, in the entire world at that time. So, uh, a system, a mechanism was put into place, according to which on the one hand, Russia had a criminal leadership. On the other hand, uh, it had a practice of using provocations in order to settle its internal political problems because we, the first war being launched to boost Yeltsin's rating, the second war being launched uh, to uh, elevate Putin into the position of president. And one of his first acts as president was to guarantee Yeltsin immunity from prosecution. So uh, we already had in the early 2000s, at a time when the West was feeding uh, uh, Putin everywhere. I mean, Putin got a grandiose in his one of his early foreign trips to 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 London to to to, to Great Britain. He got a reception that was almost unprecedented. Uh, in its uh, uh, glorification of the new Russian leader who was going to lead Russia into a, a, a better future and friendship with the West. And these, this was all done without any serious effort to understand who this man was or to look at the evidence of the apartment bombings that had just made him president. And as I did, by the way, and conclude that that what had happened was actually very dangerous for the world. Well, in the early 2000s, Russia was relatively impoverished. Uh, the, transform, the, the, the transformation of the country that occurred as a result of the boom in raw materials prices, particularly the price of oil and gas, was still to a certain extent in the future. It began to be felt as prices went higher and higher. You know, producing huge amounts of, 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 of additional income for, for Russia, which among other things allowed it to begin to modernize its armed forces. How well they did that is a question uh, of dispute, especially as we see the way they're performing now. But in any case, that effort was made and a, a, a lot of that money was also concentrated on the development of high-tech tech weapons. Unlike the U.S., Russia doesn't have to worry about providing benefits for soldiers or taking care of their welfare, which, to, which is a very low priority. But they are good at concentrating resources on, on high-tech and, high, and, and threatening aspects of military technology. So uh, the uh, situation was characterized by the fact that having seized power in the way that they did, the new KGB leadership of Russia had no intention of giving it up. This was in, inherent in the events of 1999. Uh, a group that, that is ready to carry out uh, a bombing of its own people uh, and to choose its, its victims not on the basis of, of their opposition, but completely randomly, is, 
is not going to be willing to abide by democratic procedures in the future, and is certainly not going to feel itself bound by any rules. I, I, I said at the time that, that anyone capable of doing this is capable of anything. And Putin was, was, was throughout his term in office to, to demonstrate that this was true. There were the, 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 there were terrorist acts, there were assassinations, there was the shooting down of the Malaysian airliner in 2014, which for some reason were uh, world uh, uh, the, the Western society uh, simply ignored and accepted uh, many of Ru Russia's explanations, even though those explanations keep kept changing. There were about 60 of them in the end. But uh, at the same time, uh, one of the, one of the, uh, 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 in fact, a very good example was the 2004 Beslan school massacre in which uh, many of the leading terrorists had been in Russian prisons up until you know the, the eve of the attack and had just been released. And then when hundreds of parents and children were taken hostage, the Russians opened, opened fire with flamethrowers and grenade launchers uh, and hundreds of, of hostages were burned alive. I mean, that's, those are tactics that would not be used by any civilized country, of course. And that's the terror. That's the terrorist inheritance. That's the KGB mentality. The idea that individuals don't count for anything, that they're that that they're raw material. We see this attitude right now with the way in which young Russians are being slaughtered and in, in are being thrown into a an inferno in in Ukraine and just just being slaughtered in thousands. But this was all very predictable by events that had happened earlier. But this type of regime, uh, which is determined, which is terrorist by its nature, that it's based on stolen property, that is uh, basically anti-popular because it doesn't, it, it doesn't, it, it regards individuals, the the individuals having no 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 independent importance. This type of regime is not going is going to maintain itself with whatever methods are necessary and convenient. Now, in the early years at a time when Russia benefited a great deal from the patronage of the West, uh, it was sufficient to falsify elections, to spread around uh, corruption, to use manipulation, to engage in selective terror, for example, the murder of the uh, investigative journalist Anna Politkovskaya, or the killing in London of Alexander Litvinenko, a former FSB agent. But, but by and large, mass terror was not necessary. Mass repression was not necessary because the situation was manageable. But by 2011, these techniques were beginning to wear, lose their effectiveness. I mean, one sign of this was the revolt that took place after the falsified parliamentary elections in that year, which very, very much frightened the Russian authorities and very much frightened those who were responding, who were dependent on them uh, because it, it was, you know, it was, a large mass protest, the largest that had been seen in Russia since the days of perestroika. And there was certainly the fear that, uh, that it could get out of hand and threaten their hold on power, especially under circumstances in which uh, Putin announced that he was going to seek a third term as president. The constitution uh, for, forbade more than two consecutive terms. It didn't say anything about having a third term after an interregnum. And Putin arranged for Dmitry Medvedev, who was his, his subordinate in factotum, to be the Russian president between 2008 and 2012 before announcing in 2012 
that he would once again become president. And since that time, he has, there have been various constitutional and legal changes that make it possible basically for him to rule forever, which was always the idea. But, but the 2011 uh, uh, protests were stifled. I mean, they were stifled in a variety of ways, through legal means, through police brutality, and through a sense of hopelessness that began to pervade uh, Russian society when people saw that they didn't have the instruments or the access to the uh, levers of power that would make it possible for them to actually change something. But that revolt broke out again in 2013, but it broke out in a neighboring country. It broke out in in Ukraine. Uh, now, the Maidan revolt of 2013 was, of course, not directly connected to the protests, the so-called Balotny protests, Balotny Square protests uh, in, in Russia in 2011. But they had very many similarities. They were pro popular protests against a kleptocratic regime. In the case of Ukraine, however, those protests succeeded in overthrowing the leader, Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, and they were of, and part of the reason for that was that they were absolutely massive, uh, much larger than the Bolotny pro protests in terms of the number of people involved. And it was this success in overthrowing uh, Viktor Yanukovych, who was, I mean, we, we, he, he was more pro-Russian than, than other leaders, although not completely so. But he, uh, he, had, he had refused uh, or he had, he had canceled plans to, to, to apply for membership in the European Union. And for Ukraine, this was a pivotal question because it kind of defined the possibilities for a better future and alignment, not with, not with Russian style dictatorship, but with the democratic West. Under these circumstances, uh, the Russians reverted to their normal, their normal practice when it came uh, to dealing with with an internal threat, and that was to, to stage a war. The last thing they wanted, to, they wanted was for Russians to be inspired by the example of the Euromaidan revolt and to begin uh, to protest themselves uh, and, or to organize against the regime in the way in which it was done in Ukraine. And this, the, their first step was, of course, the seizure of Crimea, uh, and then the launching of of of, of a war uh, in eastern Ukraine. And they've been fighting in eastern Ukraine, as we know, for eight years. The seizure of Crimea it sent uh, Putin's popularity soaring. Uh, you know, by some, there are various measures. I mean, some say went from 60% to 88%, some say to 80%, but the euphoria that, that was unleashed as a result of the seizure of Ukraine, was, the annexation of, um, annexation of Crimea, excuse me, uh, was just uh, something uh, remarkable. There had existed in Russia, Ever since the fall of the Soviet Union, something that we could, that was sometimes called the Weimar complex, the the sense of loss of empire, it was you know, Russians have always, and this was true under the Soviet Union, it was even true under the Tsars, identified with a powerful state, and derived a sense of personal identity from the fact that even if their lives were miserable, they were nonetheless part of a very powerful state. And as, 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 as I've said, I experienced, uh, uh, Russians were, were, took, took satisfaction from the fact that the, whole that the world was afraid of them, that they could inspire fear. Well, after the fall of the Soviet Union, nobody was afraid of Russia anymore. And uh, and so a vacuum was created that any demagogue could fill, and, the, and Putin understood that perfectly. Even Yeltsin understood it. 
but he was less able to do anything about it. Crimea, Russia does, you know, had a historical claim to, to Crimea, and that was Crimea was the scene of many episodes from Russian history. But on the other hand, with the breakup of the Soviet Union, peace demanded the respect for international borders. And that respect was confirmed many times, including by Putin himself, who said that Russia had no designs on Crimea in, nine, in 2007 in a rather well-known interview with a German journalist, and also emphasized that it respected the territorial integrity, that he and the Russian government respected the territorial integrity of Ukraine. In any case, uh, this act of aggression, the seizure, the annexation of Crimea, met, you know, inspired a very mild Western response. There were some sanctions, uh, and, and the the shooting down of the Malaysian airliner uh, by a Russian by a Russian uh, anti-aircraft battery uh, inspired no response at all. In part because we were still in the post-Yeltsin mind frame of closing our eyes and hoping for the best, uh, whereas the Russians uh, had fully developed and even institutionalized in a sense, if we consider that you know, certain reactions become almost a default reaction for people in the bureaucracy and in the, and in the military and intelligence services, the idea that war is the way to distract the attention of the population from whatever it is that is bothering them. Well, the Crimea effect was huge. Uh, it, let, it, it, it inspired a wave of euphoria and the idea that Russia is returning as a great power uh, that swept the country and lasted by most estimates for about five years before losing, it, losing its, it, its strength. People wonder now why did Russia decide to mount a full-scale invasion of Ukraine? Well, the internal reason, of course, was because this was once again the way to consolidate power. This is an instinct. This is part of, of an, an, this is an attribute of Russian authoritarian power. But uh, there, were all, there were also signs unmistakable signs that the system in Russia was running down, that it, that it had internal problems that, that could only be solved with democratic reforms that, that, that were unacceptable to the leadership. And it, therefore, it was necessary to do something once again to rally the population around the people who exploit, exploit it and abuse, who exploit them and abuse them. But uh, at the same time, uh, the United States uh, issued a blanket, almost a, 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 an invitation that was almost too tempting to refuse with the abandonment of Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan had, uh, Ukraine at various times aspired, although they, they were not accepted into NATO, it aspired to the status of trusted US ally, which is the next lower status after being a member of NATO. It doesn't carry with it the same obligation to come to the de defense of the ally, but it's still considered pretty serious. The, well, the last country that had that status was Afghanistan, and so after we abandoned Afghanistan, uh, the Ukrainians had second thoughts about the value of this, of this guarantee and of this status. Reality is that uh, the internal situation in the US today, the concentration on internal issues, on gender race issues, which are internal issues, um, the failure to look at the outside world 
and the unwillingness to make even the most minor sacrifices in order to preserve uh, the, the freedom and welfare of an allied people, all of this was a signal to Russia that there was not uh, a, and plus, of course, their assessment of the character of President Biden, which who the, with whom they're very familiar, and who was very uh, a stalwart of the Obama administration, which, as we know, persistently refused to supply Ukraine with def with defensive weapons at a time when, in fighting uh, in East Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian Ukrainians had little defense against mass tank attacks. So all of this led them to believe, plus a certain overestimation of their military abilities, that there would be no resistance or the resistance would be minimal, that the threats would be empty, and that they would, they, they would be able to uh, seize Kyiv, uh, subordinate Ukraine, uh, and inspire a new wave of euphoria in Russia, which would consolidate their hold on power. Well, of course, things didn't happen that way. The Russians have a historic tendency to underestimate their enemies. Uh, in the case of the first Chechen war, they said that a general, a general Pavel Grachov, who was the defense minister, said, we can take, uh, subdue che uh, Grozny, we can take Grozny, capital of Chechnya, in two hours with one paratroop regiment. Well, uh, 18 months later, the Russians withdrew in defeat from Chechnya. And they similarly underestimated the, the readiness of the Ukrainians to fight. This indicates, of course, and that it, we now know that there was very little consultation within the Russian bureaucracy, within the Russian defense and intelligence uh, bureaucracies, that decisions were made by a very small group. And analysts, intelligence analysts in Russia, at least according to information provided by whistleblowers who, uh, from those agencies who've talked to Vladimir Asechkin, who uh, uh, runs the site Gulag, net and has very good sources whom i know he's in france and he has very good sources in russia that many people you know who 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 would normally have been asked uh, uh uh you know to assess the the risks of an invasion were kept in the dark and the decision was very closely held and taken in a very small group that's one of the reasons by the phenomenal lack of preparedness uh, the readiness to uh, summon and throw into an inferno young boys who have just been drafted. They were drafted in December with very little training and without you know taking away their cell phones, not informing them of who they were, that they were being sent into a war, explaining to them that they were being sent to the Ukrainian border in military exercises. All of this has had an effect on the on the military catastrophe that's unfolding for the Russians in um, in Ukraine. So, uh, what lies ahead then? Uh, basically, the Russians are going to, uh, I I believe, are doomed to defeat in this adventure, one way or another. Uh, they will have the choice, of course, of they are, they are using Grozny-type tactics in Mariupol, but generally speaking, and they, this is something that they're telling the Russian domestic audience constantly, that uh, they, they're claiming that they don't attack civilian areas. That's not true, but in fact, they have not they have not gone uh, they have not engaged in all-out attacks on civilian areas. Uh, in places where they're capable of doing it. And they've not used weapons of mass destruction for the most part, but they simply, they, they can, they can. And that, would, and that, that uh, could, and I hope would change the attitude in the US about more active support, uh, including at least part, uh, declaring parts of, of of, of Ukraine subject to a no-fly zone. But um, if they do that, uh, and it's possible that there are people in, 
in the Kremlin who understand this, then that's the end for them. Uh, there'll be no possibility of any compromise anymore with the Ukrainians or with outraged world opinion. And Russia, uh, it, it, Russia can inflict a tremendous amount of damage because of the, the weapons it has, but it can't take on the whole world. And it can't. And and it's important to bear in mind that what we have is a small corrupt criminal group, which is just as much the enemy of its own people as it is of the Ukrainians, and we're beginning to see the breakdown in discipline. There was a case in which Russian soldiers uh, ran over uh, uh, one of their, uh, with a tank, or I think it was with a tank or a military vehicle, one of their commanding officers who sent them, you know, sent them to their deaths. Uh, the pilots who were sent in to kind of locate Ukrainian anti-aircraft defenses were told that those defenses were obsolete, that they didn't work, there was nothing to fear, and they were sent to their deaths. I mean, one or two pilots that survived and were captured by the Ukrainians have made this clear. You can't keep uh, a war effort like this going, facing a determined enemy. Uh, on the basis of easily exposable lies. And uh, they, the, the ferocious and sustained uh, guerrilla war uh, will not allow Russia to dominate the entire country and uh, will make even the occupation of the country extremely problematic. We know the example of the occupation of Chechnya, where the Russians simply stayed in their checkpoints and were, you know, they conducted a few patrols in the major cities, but barely got out of their vehicles and were afraid and were simply afraid to take a, to take an independent step because they were surrounded by enemies everywhere. Well, that will be that will certainly be the case if they resort to uh, weapons of mass destruction in Ukraine. And if they don't use them, uh, we've already seen that, they, that they're, uh, they're not going to be able to defeat the, uh, the Ukrainian army. So with the future then uh, contains a number of not very uh, promising possibilities. Uh, it, Russia has a long, a long history of not of not honoring its treaty obligations. So a treaty uh, is problematic, even though it might stop the, the the fighting for the time being. It's going to be important that the sanctions which were imposed on Russia that those sanctions be maintained until until the the complete evacuation of Ukrainian territory. But uh, you know, Russia had a treaty of friendship with Ukraine in 19, 1997. It signed a deal in two thousand and ten for the allowing, uh, you know, in which Ukraine uh, allowed Russia to lease the base in Sevastopol in Crimea in return for a discount on gas deliveries. Well, of course, then they annexed uh, the entire peninsula, and the deal became moot. But but uh, so we you know any any deal that they make, or even, you know, as we know, the Russian Chechen peace treaty was violated. Any deal that they make is likely to only to give temporary relief. Uh, the uh, a complete victory by the Ukrainians is unlikely as long as Russia commands the air uh, simply because they can, um, you know, they can, they can respond to concentrations of Ukrainian forces, uh, and uh, and they might do do so under the circumstances in which they were under attack. Right, mostly, mostly Ukrainians have been in a defensive position. The uh, a stalemate. Uh, will be a source of continuing uh, destabilization and world tension. And uh, ultimately, the, uh, the acknowledgement by Russia 
that they did not achieve all of their war aims uh, will be impossible to hide from the Russian people and is very likely to destabilize Russia itself. So the, the variety of possibilities is that the is pretty grim. What Russia unleashed uh, threatens tension and destabilization in a vital part of the world, and it threatens it for a long time. It's going to be important, and I mean the best, the best case scenario, the one thing that we could hope for, uh, however remote it may seem is that elements in the Russian military and in, the, and in Russian security establishment will force an end to this conflict and remove Putin uh, and then try to reestablish ties with the West. Uh, we don't have any sign that that's happening now. However, uh, before the war began, a retired general by the name of Leonid Ivashov warned that it would be a disaster and that its real purpose was to reinforce the power of the regime. If enough people share that point of view, and I believe that, they, that that's very likely, change might come from within Russia. Uh, that would be uh, the best hope for reaching a reasonable solution to this crisis. But um, what we really should have done was prevent, would have, was, we should have tried to prevent the way Russia developed right from the beginning in 1992, and especially 1999, when we closed our eyes to the apartment bombings and, and the fact that a terrorist had taken power in Russia. Uh, now we're li living with the consequences and uh, all we can do at this point is try to stick by our values, which the same values we betrayed in, in Afghanistan and give uh, stalwart support to the Ukrainians and of course, hope for the best. Now, uh, I don't know how much time we have, but I'm sure many of you have questions. So uh, that's, uh, that's basically you know, the history as I see it. And I'll welcome it, you know, your, your, uh, your questions and try to respond to them. Yeah, so we will take questions now. If you have questions, please feel welcome to comment in the Q&A section at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Um, and we do have a little bit of time, so we'll take a few questions here. Um, the first question, what are the chances of Putin being forced out of power by other elites in Russia? Um, unpredictable, unpredictable, it can't be excluded, can't be excluded, especially, uh, I think the, 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 the very fact that, that some people in Russia are talking about compromise and limiting their objectives is a sign that they're aware of that possibility, but very difficult for us from the outside to predict something like that. Any such move would of course be very conspiratorial and full of risk for the people who are undertaking it. So uh, uh, I would not hesitate a guess beyond saying that it's a possibility. Another question here, assuming that Ukraine is making military progress, it needs, um, to be remembered that when your opponent is backed into a corner, he or she fights the more viciously. It may be unpalatable, but what kind of face-saving options could be made available for Putin? Uh, well, I think that he himself will come up with the face-saving options. Uh, you know, if he's backed into a corner, uh, his imagination will, will be very active, and so will uh, the imaginations of the people around them. They will come up with something that, I mean, saving face will be one of their objectives, but it shouldn't be one of our objectives. Our objectives is to get them to stop the, the, uh, the aggression. Once uh, they've, there's enough uh, uh, military pressure brought to bear, they will be very creative in finding ways to save face. 
Uh, the next question we have, um, we've caricatured the Russian army as Keystone cops, but might the push on Kiev have been a clever tactical head fake? They have meanwhile secured the southern land bridge to Crimea from the east. They could now negotiate having gained what they really wanted without ever taking Kiev. Well, uh, all everything that we know about their plans suggests that, and, and also the propaganda preparation of the Russian people, uh, that they were, that this was a special military operation to rid uh, uh, the Ukrainians of not, to denazify uh, 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 Ukraine, uh, all of that pre presupposed taking Kyiv and doing it quickly. Uh, so I don't think, I think that what we're talking, you know, I think we're seeing uh, a change in the way in which they, uh, the way in which they explain their objectives as part of a face-saving operation, right? I think the face-saving operation is already underway because of the, they have made a judgment about the kind of resistance that they're going to face if they try to take Kyiv. Thank you. Uh, and the next question, do you believe that Putin's reference to nuclear weapons is realistic or simply bombast? Well, I, this is traditional Russia in Russia. Nikita Khrushchev in the Soviet period was always threatening the West with nuclear weapons. In recent years, uh, those tactics have been uh, used much less, uh, but uh, the Russians treat this as a strategic instrument in order to to for you know to push back you know to prevent the West from taking. Uh, it costs them nothing to make such irresponsible threats, uh, and it can it can give them a real military advantage because it it can dissuade the West from taking necessary steps to help Ukraine or or organize our own defense and the defense of the alliance. That's why they do it. I mean, would, uh, would they use nuclear weapons either in Ukraine or uh, elsewhere if they felt uh, there was no, no other way to win? The fact is that um, it morally, yes, uh, they would, but uh, they, you know, it's our job to make them fear the consequences, because after all, as has been pointed out, we also have nuclear weapons. And uh, they have to be fearful that the use of nuclear weapons would threaten their own survival. And that, that perception has to be strengthened. That's really key for us. Um, the next question, what do you think the future of the Russian state looks like after this Russo-Ukraine war? Well, it depends how the war ends, of course, but there could be strong secessionist tendencies in Russia, in, in the North Caucasus, in Tatarstan, elsewhere, maybe even the Far East, uh, because Russia, uh, if Russia is roundly defeated, uh, under conditions in which it's impossible to conceal that defeat, then uh, you know there could be there could be there could be real unrest in Russia. Uh, the right now it's probably a majority of the population with you know Russia has about 10, 15 percent of people who are 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 think are democratically oriented and and capable of thinking. Uh, but the remaining 85% is, uh, you know, holds the views they hold under the influence of state propaganda. If that becomes less convincing, that 10 to 15% is capable of taking a lot of people with them. And we could see, you know, really fundamental change in Russia. The danger is that given Russia's traditions and the kind of violence in that society, that it could be uh you know, we 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 don't know how you know we don't know that it would be peaceful thank you uh next question uh what are your thoughts about a humanitarian cover for air support over ukraine by us and its allies 
Well, this is something that we definitely have to consider. I mean, if they surround cities and start starving people to death, then the next question is, do we uh, announce a humanitarian airlift uh, and, and a no-fly zone if affecting our planes? And then if they attack them, we did this in the case of the Berlin airlift. Uh, then uh, this, if they go too far in terms of their atroc of atrocities, uh, it's hard for us to stay out, and not just for emotional reasons, uh, because if America, with all of its power, stands by and allows a friendly the citizens of a friendly country to just be slaughtered. Uh, it undermines any credibility uh, that we might have as far as regard, you know, a fidelity to principle. Who, uh, the President Biden has emphasized that we're going to defend, we'll defend like tigers if if uh, the a NATO border is 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 violated. But um, you know our you don't have an emotional defense of a bureaucratic category. Uh, you, you defend emotionally what you believe in, your fundamental principles. And if you uh, substitute a defensive principle for a defensive principle, you know, a, a readiness to, 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 to enforce a bureaucratic uh, 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 designation, uh, you're definitely undermining uh, your credibility in the eyes of a potential adversary. We, what we showed in Afghanistan that was so dangerous was that, that, that we have, that, it, you know, that we didn't feel any commitment to people. We didn't care what happened to them. We didn't worry about their security or the kind of horror that, that's going to face them under the rule by the Taliban, and it's going to be pretty bad. Uh, that didn't matter to us. We didn't, there wasn't a moral component. The question was convenience. We didn't want any more endless wars. Well, who wants an endless war? Nobody, but, the, but, but we do want endless security. And sometimes certain steps have to be taken in, in that regard. So I think that the, uh, the possibility of our getting involved in this thing is, is very far from, from, from over. Have time for a, a few more questions here. Um, the next question: Wonderful presentation. What role does the oligarchy play in Russian governance? How would removal of Putin actually change Russian attitudes towards its empire and the desire to prove its strength? Well, the oligarchy. It depends what we mean by oligarchy. There are people around Putin who run the state corporations and who siphon off money from the cash flows. We could say that they're oligarchs, or we could say that they're Putin's personal cabal. The 1990s oligarchs have been deprived of political power, but not of their money and not of their wealth. Uh, what they, you know, that you know, sanctions against them are important because they have an effect on the economy. They don't necessarily mean that that's a direct attack attack on on. Putin's core constituency, because they, they are subordinated now uh, politically in political terms. And even their remarks in the case, you know, Trubais, for example, has emigrated uh, at long last, and various other of the oligarchs have protested the war because, of course, it threatens their business interests. They don't have the power necessarily to do anything about that. But the fact that the economy is tanking, that, that will that, that could affect uh, even those people who are not oligarchs, but have you know, positions of power in the military or in the intelligence establishment. Thank you. Um, and we'll take two more questions and I'll pull them from Facebook. Um, one viewer asks if you could maybe talk about um, you know, the prognosis for Belarus regime change. So if you could comment on that. 
Well, I think if Russia backs up, uh, I mean, Belarus is a small country uh, in terms of population uh, uh, compared to Russia. And if uh, Russia is going to back up uh, uh, Lukashenko as it's done so far, uh, it may be difficult. Uh, that regime change, however, becomes very likely under conditions in which um, the settlement in Ukraine, if there is a settlement or the guerrilla war that 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 results weakens uh, uh, Putin with some of his core constituencies, and uh, and to the point that he doesn't want to risk something in a neighboring country. And the last question we'll take um, is: There any hope for Russia to join the Western world as a responsible nation in a post-Putin world, or will we see another dictator? Well, there's always hope. And in fact, the, 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 if Putin is discredited and democratic forces, you know, Russia's become a very sophisticated country in some ways. It has a big middle class, it's people travel. Uh, it's not as, it's, you know, they aren't, they aren't isolated from the world the way they were during the Soviet period. But uh, uh, that's something to be hoped for and worked for. But it will, of course, take the efforts of people inside the country, it'll take efforts by us too, to better understand Russia and to give guidance to Russia that's much better than what we've given them in the past. All right, so that is all the time that we have. I would like to thank Mr. Satter for this very timely and informative discussion and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you everyone and have a good rest of your day.